We're in a sermon series just now called Restore in 2024, and our sermon series is a walk through the book of Nehemiah, and I'm inviting you into a journey with us as a church, as the Holy Spirit leads us into this next phase of what will be with this church. We've looked at how Jerusalem had fallen in 586 BC. When the Babylonians basically defeated the Israelites, they destroyed the city and they took all the Jewish people into captivity. We've read how God had called Nehemiah and his people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to reestablish the dwelling place of God, the temple, and also to restore the city. There's a wonderful visual illustration of the task, do you know, the church today in this book of Nehemiah. We too are called to rebuild. We too are called to repair so that the name of Jesus may be honored once again in our society. Amen? Amen. As we journey this book, we are asking ourselves, how can we apply what we're learning to our own lives and also to the life of our city? So let me recap on the first two chapters. Uh, it begins in 445 BC when Nehemiah gets news that the city's walls are still lying in ruins. This wall basically was essentially for the blessing, you know, the security of the city. Do you know, in ancient times, an unwalled city had no security whatsoever. They were really, really vulnerable, you know, to their enemies and in constant, you know, danger of being raided and everything being stolen. The Jews in Jerusalem in chapter 1, verse 3, is described as being in, you know, trouble and great shame over this. Now, Nehemiah doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives 800 miles away, do you know, in Persia. And he's an official, a government official, and he works for King Artaxerxes. And when he gets the bad news, you know, what actually happens, it begins to work in his heart, begins to touch here. Nehemiah, if you read the book, is one of the best books in leadership that you'll actually find in the Bible. But it's also one of the best illustrations of how God actually calls you and shows you what he wants to do with your life. So in chapter 1, we discover that God's work always starts in the heart of an individual. You know, you can often discover your calling in life by what breaks your heart and doesn't break others. Nehemiah's heart, heart here is disturbed. So for four months, he prays in a certain way. He prayed and he fasted. He confessed the sins of the people that actually led them into captivity in the first place. And remember, I taught you, you know, about how he prayed. You know, he used the acronym, we used the acronym ACTS. He starts off with adoration before God. Then he goes into confession. Then he goes into thanksgiving. And only then does he bring the prayers of supplication. And through Nehemiah's prayers, God caused King Artaxerxes to give Nehemiah great, great favor. But at first, nothing seemed to go his way. Nothing seemed to open up to him. No opportunity to actually speak to the king at all. But Nehemiah used those four months praying, and also he used it to develop a plan. Now, it really was a waiting with a purpose time. And I've talked about this before, what happens when you're waiting for God to answer prayers. See, delays in answers, you know, in answered prayers, basically are sometimes given to us by the Lord so that we have time to actually plan ahead. And do you know what? Failing to plan, do you know, is planning to fail. Failing to plan is planning to fail. So Nehemiah plans. What would I do if I got the chance to go to Jerusalem and make a difference? And in chapter 2, in the first 10 verses, we see that Nehemiah got that chance. 
The king notices his sadness and he asks him, what's wrong with you, Nehemiah? Nehemiah risks his life and shares with the king. Now, he wasn't trying to manipulate the, the moment. He, it just came out. But to every question, i.e., what do you want? Where will you go? How long will you be gone? What will you need? Nehemiah had an answer because he had planned. And those answers pleased the king, and he allowed them to go, demonstrating that the Lord's favor was actually resting upon Nehemiah. The last 10 verses of chapter 2 shows that Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem. Now, in the book of Ezra, which is the book before Nehemiah, and bear in mind, Ezra was the first one to re, you know, take some of the Jewish people back to the city of Jerusalem. Ezra tells us that it took three to four months to actually travel to, from Persia to Jerusalem. So probably eight months have actually passed hearing about the news, you know, and then arriving in Jerusalem, an eight-month eight period there. Nehemiah had a vision of what can be i.e. the preferred future. He has a plan how to address the problems actually before him. Now, last year, if you remember in my messages, I was constantly trying to prepare us for the change that God said that was coming to this fellowship this year. This was my, my waiting and planning time. And your staff and your directors have been asking basically the three questions that we learn from Nehemiah, and they're this where are we as a church? I.e., we're assessing the reality of where we are. Where are we going? What's God's vision for us for the future? And how are we going to get there? How to work the plan that He actually gives us? And we start, remember, where we are, and we do it together, like Nehemiah did with his people. Since the beginning of this year, I've been casting vision of what can be church for our church. And I'm starting to unpack the next stage of this journey that we believe that God is actually inviting us into. Nehemiah calls all the people of the city together, and he shares with them the vision and the plan with them. Now, our staff and directors have been praying and planning with me, and we will, you know, call you all together so in two weeks' time, and we want to share a little bit, you know, about that. So please don't miss that. Put that in your diary. It'll be a good one to be here for. And if you've missed what's been said so far, you can always catch up with our sermons, you know, uh, online on our website. Do you know, Nehemiah has been able to relate the blessings of God, and he's been able to point outside the door and say, hey guys, look at the supplies and the building material that, you know, I brought from the king here. God's blessed us through this. People are excited. They start to work together because in Nehemiah's great faith, his diligence and the Lord's favor. And so the restoration work begins. Likewise, God has blessed our church, and we're starting to see the fruit. As you guys have been open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, you're impacting people. The testimonies of changed lives, healings, miraculous provision, breakthroughs clearly shows God's favor upon many of you. Do you know, I could do a whole sermon on the favor of God that's been poured onto the people in this church. I mean, that's why Kate you know, and uh, the student, you know, what's happening in International Cafe, what Tamsin's doing in the prisons, do you know, they are, we are reaching out and we're starting to see fruit because of that reaching out. And what we'll see today is that as the work begins, unfortunately, so does the opposition. Every vision leads to collision. He's turned to your neighbor and say that. Every vision leads to, yeah. You get a vision, you share the vision, opposition. It's like going to your holidays in Spain. 
you know, you know you're going to hit a couple of bumps, a little bit of turbulence, but you always get there, eh? And it's always nicer weather when you get there. <laughs> it's always we leave the rainy stuff behind. And maybe there's a metaphor in that. Every vision leads to collision. So we're going to pick it up at Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 19. But when Sambalat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this for you. You have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So let's look at today how to defeat discouragement. We don't have time to read all of chapter 3, but it's all about, you know, who is working there and who is working where. Do you ever wonder, sitting in a church or sitting in your office, am I needed? Do I have anything to offer, you know, here? Is what I do of any value? Is it of any significance? You see, in chapter 3, we see that everyone, every single person was needed. Everyone went to work shoulder by shoulder, side by side, rebuilding, restoring, and also repairing. Each was given a portion of different lengths of the wall to actually rebuild. And do you know what? The key is not to compare, but simply to get on with whatever it is that God has given you to do. God notices what each one of us does, and He values what you do. 2,500 years later, we are still reading about the people of God and what they did back then, and we, even their names are actually listed for all of history in the Bible. They were all volunteers. None of them appeared to have been professional builders by trade. They were business people, entrepreneurs, you know, rulers, nobles, you know, goldsmiths and perfume makers. Yet, they were willing to offer themselves for the task of rebuilding. Can I ask you a question? Are you? Well, we get two people here. Are you? Yes. Yes. In fact, all ages were involved. Doesn't matter how young you were, how old you were. In fact, chapter 3, verse 12 says this, Shalom, son of Halashesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his little daughters, his daughters. They might have been tempted to think, you know, what they were doing did not seem very significant. You know, maybe they could only lift wee bricks. Also, there's another guy called <laughs> Malkajai. Do you know, he was a ruler and was asked to repair the dung gate. Guess what comes out of the dung gate? Sewage. He's a ruler and he's get, oh, by the way, you get the smelly one. You get the smelly job to actually do. And he did not complain. He didn't say, hey, that's beneath me. He simply got on with it because the sewage had to go somewhere. Eh? Together, they were part of something that was very significant that let them rise above that. They were rebuilding Jerusalem. They were bringing honor to God's name. And it's the same task today that every church in this city in Glasgow actually has today. I hope you two are excited about what lies ahead of us, and that you feel that you're wanted and you know that you're needed. And chapter 4 is where the opposition really starts to kick off. The rebuilding has begun, and we read in chapter 4, verse 1, when Sambalad heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry, and he was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, brought an army with him. Huh? He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? 
Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building. Even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. So the bloggers show up, okay? Old bloggers, okay? The bloggers have shown up again. In chapter 2, it's interesting that Sambalad and Tobiah mocked and they ridiculed. They continue this in chapter 4, by the way, but now they're angry and they're incensed. Because whenever you move forward for God, you need to understand that you've got a spiritual enemy who will oppose you. He will oppose you. And sometimes what he does is he inflames the hearts of others against you. When following God's plan, we don't face opposition from the world because we're doing something wrong. We face opposition because we're doing something actually right. And today through the story of Nehemiah, I want to show you two different ways that our spiritual enemy tries to discourage us, and then two ways from Nehemiah's life to overcome it. See, let me say it this way. If you want to get your breakthrough, you've got to defeat the discouragement, because the discouragement will hold you back. And guys, some of you are on the precipice today, this day, you're on the brick precipice of your breakthrough today. And we've got to violently go towards that because you've got a violent enemy that will hold you back. And we'll talk a little bit more about that at ministry's time. Your enemy will firstly try to discourage you from the outside. He will use external forces, you know, to try and discourage you and cause you to quit. They're building a wall and for protection. And what happens? An armed foreign army shows up. Now, that's a big intimidating obstacle, isn't it? Some of you might have had meetings this week canceled because we had several storms that actually stopped you from that. That's an intimidating obstacle that put you back maybe one or two steps. You're moving forward. You're making progress. You take two steps forward, and all of a sudden, it feels like you're taking three steps backwards. You're building a ministry in the church. You're gathering people. You're training people. You're releasing people into leadership and also ministry. You have a vision to do something significant in our generation. And then recession followed by COVID actually hits and you find that those people you trained have to relocate because their job has moved. Two steps forward, three steps back. It could be you're saying, you know what, we as a family, we're going to get right in there with the Lord. We're going to start coming to church every single Sunday. We're going to, you know, join a house group, and we're actually going to, you know, do a Bible study together as a family. And then your teenager announces, I don't know if I believe in God anymore. Two steps forward, three steps back. Or you think, you know what, we're going to get out of debt. We're going to budget. You get the family all around. You're going to budget. We're not going to take out any more debt. We're going to clear our credit cards. And then the very next day, your car breaks down, and it's an 850-pound repair bill. Two steps forward, three steps back. Guys, some of you right now, you've taken a few steps forward, and you're facing obstacles. Don't let the obstacles discourage you from doing what you believe God has called you to do. The second way you will find opposition from the outside is with criticism. Anyone been there, been criticized unfairly? Sambalad and Tobiah came at the Jewish people with, who are you? Who are you? You feeble, weak Jews. You're never going to get anything done. In fact, even a little fox kind of ran across that wall. It just completely crumbled. It would fall down. They criticized. And guys, you'll get that too. In fact, they made fun of them. 
They hoped that by mocking, do you know, the people of God, do you know, for doing what they were actually doing, that they could make them feel so, you know, embarrassed, so ashamed, so discouraged, that they would give up and say, oh, what's the point here? Church, don't you see this is exactly what the world does today towards Christians? We have a world that in many ways, not always, in many ways, is hostile to the truth of God's Word and the message of Jesus Christ. And so often what they do is they use things against us, don't they? They use ridicule and they use mocking. They throw all these kind of weird characters, don't they, on TV. Do you know, I have to admit, some of them are actually funny. Some of them are actually funny. But they're meant to make people laugh at us, not with us. Think of the vicar of Dibley, Father Ted. On the one hand, hilarious, but when you listen to the, the narrative, you get the point. Christians are a bunch of fools and they're hypocrites. So it is. Have you ever wondered why there's never been a Muslim equivalent sitcom like the two I just mentioned? Ever wonder why? Because <laughs> they wouldn't stand for it. Neither do we. And when that gets spread about the culture in a thousand different ways, it's designed to make you go, oh, what's the use? This mountain's too high to climb. I don't want to be laughed at. I don't want to be ridiculed or mocked. Guys, it's time for Christians to have more backbone. It's time for us to have a spine. It's time for us to actually go in the offense, not the defense anymore. We are called to take ground, not to just consolidate and definitely not to take a step back. Do you know, take a leaf out of Winston Churchill's book when people criticized him. He says, you have enemies. Good. <laughs> Good. That means you stood up for something sometime in your life. I thought, amen. He had a great attitude towards opposition. He endured. But what he wouldn't let it do is he wouldn't let it discourage him in any way. And neither would the Jews. And ultimately, do you know, it led them to actually build the wall not walk away from the wall. But Sambalad and Tobiah, well, they just kept trying to discourage. And so they're ridiculing. You can't do it. This is stupid. You guys should just give up. Now, let me tell you what made the mockery difficult for those who are listening to hear. Because it was partly true, what they were saying. These guys weren't tradesmen. They were, but they were doing the best with what they had. So they were. But there was just enough truth to make the mockery sting a little bit. But you know what? There was a greater truth. There was a greater truth that made a difference. And the difference was God was doing something amazing through these people. And you know what? They rebuilt a wall in 52 days that the previous generation had taken 91 years and failed at doing. If that's not God's favor, I don't know what is. So you may get so excited about doing something significant on the behalf of God, you're going to leave maybe a higher paid job and you know, you've given you more time to actually do a ministry or do serve people in different ways. And maybe it's something, you know, it's going to use your gifts, your talents. You're going to make a big, big difference and you can just sense it. And everybody's like, you're off your head. <laughs> you're stupid. Why would you take a lower paid job, you know, and all of a sudden you're going, I feel a bit deflated here. Because as soon as you start doing something right, your spiritual enemy starts to show up and tries to derail you. And it's a choice. We've got some awesome students in here. And this isn't you guys, right? But we've got some awesome students. But I don't know how many times I've seen students come to Glasgow going, I'm going to take this, you know, campus. You know, we're going to have prayer meetings. We're going to do Alpha. We're going to do this. And only to meet their newfound friends going, are you one of the Bible thumpers? And watch them take a step back. And then another step back. 
and soon you can't tell the difference between the Christians and the non-Christians. Guys, here's what you need to understand. If you want to change the world, if you want to do something significant, if you want to be a leader, enduring criticism is just a part of leadership. You just have to know that. You're going to be criticized, but you're in good company because you're standing with guys like Jesus and guys like Nehemiah, and that's good enough for me. I don't know about you, but that's good enough for me. And here's what he did. He did two things. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it had reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. First thing he did when they criticized him was he took it to God. He took it straight to God. Over and over again, you see Nehemiah doing this. He took it to God. And then the second thing he did was he get back to work. He get back to work. He didn't go and have a wee pity party. He get back to work. Anytime people criticize you, you don't have to lead defensively and beg people to be on your side or, or run away. You take it to God and then you go back to work. Friends have asked me, Jamie, do people ever criticize you? Do you ever feel like giving up? Well, I have had people criticize me, make fun of me, ridicule me, belittle me. But the reason you might not know that is because I'm not leading defensively. There's nothing to defend. Does it ever bother you? I was asked, you know, when you're criticized and misunderstood. Of course it does. I'm human. Of course it bothers me. But I never let that direct me into sloppy leadership. What I do is I take it to God and I get back to work. Why? Because I don't answer to critics. I don't answer to God. That's the ultimate authority in my life. Are critics of any value? Absolutely they are. When they have tender, loving hearts, they can be of a great benefit to you, especially if you're heading down, you know, a wrong path. Then you can apologize and get back on the track, you know. But that's not the kind of blogger that Nehemiah is facing and dealing with here in the Scripture. When you're doing something right, your enemy will oppose you from the outside. Do you know, he'll bring obstacles and he'll bring, you know, criticism. The second thing is, is your enemy will try to oppose you from the inside. It says here in verse 10, we can, we can start to see the insecurities of the Jewish people starting to come out here. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right, they will be there, sorry, they will be right there among them and kill them. So, let me read that again. Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, whatever you turn, they will attack us. So what is this? This is discouragement from the inside. It's too much. It's too big a task. So he's been discouraged from the outside, but he's also been discouraged from within. We don't have what it takes. We're not good enough. We're in danger. And I can promise you guys, when God speaks to you to do something great, you're, say it's you're going to defend the unborn. Say it's something like that. Are you going to work to help to feed hungry children? Are you going to minister to teenagers? There will be a voice that's going to say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? I can remember going and talking to as many pastors in the West End before we planted this church. You know, we got a whole wee gaggle of them and they, they came to give me advice. And what they said to me is, don't come. 
that you'll never get it off the ground. Jamie, you're naive to think you can do what we've been trying to do for years. Do you know, who do you think you are? That was what they were saying. Glasgow's a pastor's graveyard. I thought, thanks for the encouragement, guys. <laughs> I mean, it happened to Jesus, didn't it? Mark chapter 3. Jesus heals a man with a, a withered hand in the synagogue. Masses of people are now starting to follow him. Do you know, he's healing people left, right, and center. Demons are screaming and falling down before him, declaring that he is the son of God, you know, as he delivers the tormented people. And the crowds, they're growing. And they're growing so much that he appoints the 12 disciples, and now the ministry is actually growing. And he's doing a lot of good, so Jesus is. And then we find in Mark chapter 3, verse 20, this. Then Jesus entered the house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they had said, he's out of his mind. That's Mary. My boy's lost that. <laughs> oh, I forgot the big angel shiny dude in the, you know, immaculate conception, but uh, my boy's lost that. Ouch. It's one thing to be attacked by outsiders. Your own family, well, that kind of hurts deeper, huh? And then to make it worse, the bloggers turn up, don't they? Verse 22, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. And I can promise you that if you listen to that voice, you may even doubt yourself. Why? Because your spiritual enemy won't stop. He wants to stop the work of God through you, through God's people. Do you know, you're actually being attacked because you're representing God, do you know, in heaven on earth. So it is. So how do you defeat discouragement? Let's look at the good stuff now. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall of the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. Speaking to the opponents, he said, don't be afraid of them. Remember, remember the Lord who is great, who is awesome. If he were living... Nehemiah was living in the New Testament times. He'd probably say something like, hey, 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 guys, listen to me. Don't be afraid of them. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. He would have said, don't be afraid of them because if God is for us, who can be against us? He would have said, don't you be afraid of them because who can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Can trouble, can hardship, can persecution, can famine, you know, can nakedness, can peril or sword? No, no, no. And all these things, we are more than what? Conquerors through Christ who gives us strength. Guys, I know some of you, you're feeling it on the inside. Don't be afraid of your spiritual enemy. Here's what he goes on to say. He says this, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your people, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And he's basically saying, guys, if you're discouraged, if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you feel incapable or unworthy, you can do these two things. And the first thing that Nehemiah says is don't be afraid of them, but remember the Lord who is great and awesome. What he's saying here to the Jewish people was a loaded statement. 
He's saying, remember the times when God rescued us. Remember the time when you were in captivity. And remember the time when God raised up Moses. And can you remember when Moses said, I don't speak good. And God said to, you know, Moses, I will give you the words to speak. And can you remember when he stood in front of Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And then can you remember when the 10 plagues came? And you can remember when Pharaoh let the people go and then pursued them. And we had the mountains to the side, the sea to the back, and, you know, Pharaoh's army in front of us. And can you remember when the Lord parted the Red Sea and we crossed over safely and the waves came crashing over Pharaoh's army? Can you remember when he led us by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day? Can you remember when he fed us with quail and manna throughout those, you know, deserts? Can you remember? See, whenever I'm discouraged, I remember back to a time. I remember back to a time when I was facing a lot of persecution, a lot of opposition. I wasn't sleeping at night because of it. The constant criticism, the threats, the harassment. And I can remember kneeling down in my living room, you know, in Pollock. And I took it to God and I asked him to deliver me from the situation that I was facing. And I can remember kneeling down one person. But I can remember standing up somebody totally different from that. Because I remembered what God showed me. God showed me. I can remember the first thing he showed me was one time I was riding my motorbike. I wasn't a Christian. I was doing, I was going fast, okay? (laughs) Way beyond the the national speed limit on a corner, on this big sweeping bend, because I had a GS 1000. My mate had a GS 1000. We got up at five o'clock Sunday morning, thought we'd raced in the motorway. Okay, don't do it. But I can remember doing that, and I'm, 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 I'm coming round, and I'm on the bench, you know, and I'm doing maybe about 80 mile an hour on a bench, you know, really hogging it right down, and I had a pothole, and I just remember the bike going like that, and then this hand just grabbed me, and it put me like this and put me straight on. I was starting to tumble with this big GS 1000, I went, what was that? And my friend went, how did that happen? That was miraculous, he said. I can remember other times where my life's been in danger and the Lord has rescued me. I can remember the presence. I can remember the power of God, you know, when he did those things. And I remember how he said that he called me to do this stuff and therefore he would deliver me. But I still had to walk in it. See, whenever I'm discouraged in church, I remember the times of miraculous provision, of salvations, of healings, of breakthroughs. That's why I asked the guys to come up and share at the beginning so that you will remember how your God does things today. I'm telling you, some of you, it's time for you to remember. If you're discouraged, think back when God provided or when God protected you or when God, you know, showed you favor. Whenever you're discouraged, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord your God. And here's the second thing. We need to move quickly. Fight for your cause. Fight for it. Fight for your cause. Not for yourself. Because you fight just for yourself, you're going to give up. You might even surrender. But if you fight for something beyond you, beyond yourself, someone that you love, someone that, you know, needs you, someone that couldn't make it without you, if you fight for someone else, God will give you the spiritual strength that you can never have in your own. And that's what Nehemiah said. He said, don't fight for yourself, but instead of you you know, for your people and fight for your sons and fight for your daughters and for your wives and for your homes. If we Christians don't fight for this city of Glasgow, I know an enemy who will. I know an enemy who is. He's already destroyed gate after gate, church after church, and its people have either been scattered, died, or been captured by apathy, materialism, or liberalism. Christianity, newsflash, Christianity is not a playground. 
It's a battleground. Sometimes it's a battleground. And we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers in this dark world. And we need to fight for our kids, folks, for our youth. We need to fight for the poor, for freedom of speech. We need to fight for the gospel, and we need to fight for this city. And when he comes against you, fight like a man or a woman of God and get down on your knees and you bring it before God. Remember whilst, do you know, remember whilst doing what Nehemiah had, you know, his people do. He said, guys, our enemy's going to attack us and we're going to be ready, but we're not going to stop working. So let me summarize what we said today. Opposition and ridicule from the outside, we found that in verses 1 to 8. And discouragement from within came in verses 10 to 12. The same was true for Jesus. The opposition to Jesus and his church continues still to this day. But verse 14 tells us that you do not need to be afraid. Through a combination of prayer and action, success is actually possible. It's achievable. When opposition comes, respond like Nehemiah in verse 9. With increased prayer and extra vigilance. In fact, verse 23 tells us they never dropped their guard, which was amazing. And the key to all this is found in verse 20, our God will fight for us. See, with God fighting for us, a nation could be changed. Churches can be filled, family life strengthened, marriage honored, and the crime rate can fall and society can be transformed. Most important of all, the name of Jesus can be honored again. As you look around the state of the church, Get involved in this task of rebuilding. Be willing to work hard and not be put off by discouragement and opposition. You know my favorite verse in all this? Do you know, is our God will fight for us. And that's a promise. That's a declaration. Why don't we stand?